Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those, those, those boys. That's... Yeah. They have asked for that, really. Well, you can laugh. I'm to walk up. I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. What are you doing down here? You're showing man. There's something about a late, important goal in a football match that makes you feel good about life, isn't there? Divock Origi ignoring a possibly better place, Sadio Mane, to take all the glory for Liverpool four minutes into injury time was just one example over the weekend. Patrick Bamford sending Ellen Road into raptures by thawing the ball in off the crossbar even later than that. Neil Mopé going later again. Was it 98 minutes on the clock for Brighton? And he scored a volley, marking the occasion with the longest ever finger-to-the-mouth shushing gesture <laughs> I've seen in my life. It almost makes Arthur Masuaku's 87th-minute winner for West Ham against Chelsea seem carelessly early. You're giving them far too much time to get back into it there, lad, but you got away with it this time. You're welcome to Monday's Second Captain's Football Podcast. Hi, Ken. Hi, Murph. Hey, Owen. Oh, how's how it going? You? Your favourite goal of that lot, guys, out of those ones I mentioned? Masuaku probably for me, yeah. Bamford, Mopé. Masuaku, so hang on, Murph. Are you going uh, with Jonathan Pierce's mad idea that he he tried, he was going for a goal? <laughs> oh, there? no, that's obviously yeah. mental. Obviously. I mean, that was yeah. one of the craziest things I've ever heard He wasn't. Uh, but then I looked at it, I was looking for the goal again on YouTube just to watch it again this morning and there was a totally different commentary team and I wasn't not sure exactly what station I was watching it on who said the same thing as Jonathan Pierce? Maybe if you were in the stadium it felt like it was a deliberate strike mm. but not to anyone watching on TV anyway. Yeah, yeah. So mean, why is that your favourite one over and above for example Origi? Well what can I say on and the you know the uh, six degrees of separation uh, rule there's no doubt about it David Moyes is um, the closest Premier League personality to me uh, given that he's a close person friend of yours sure. so I uh, all of Moisey's uh, wins I come to regard as my own uh, I mean a man that I know very well once said donuts with this man uh, that's good enough for me good man Mar. what about you Ken well I think I mean I would go with a composite of I thought the Origi goal was probably the best of the of the ones that you've mentioned the Bamford celebration was the best Shirt um, off, going crazy, running around. Yeah, Moyes probably had the best managerial reaction. <laughs> um, uh, what was he? Mope, did you see Mope? Oh, Mope, 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 Mope yeah. also had the the element of tragedy of um, James Ward Prowse 
you know, <laughs> WordPress, no. WordPress just just had that moment, just that momentary collapse of confidence where he's like, I've got to get back in the line. I've just got to get back in the line. I think he's going to put this one over. He's going to flick one here. He's going to flick one. And, and, and runs back to cover a shot to, that, that he thinks is maybe going to go over the wall into the, to the far post from, from the goalkeeper. And in so doing, plays everybody on side. Because he runs back. The ball hits the wall, goes back to the, maybe it was, I can't remember it was the original guy who took the free kick. Mm -hmm. um, and Ward Prowse immediately starts sprinting out. But it's too late. It's too late. All he manages to do is sort of catapult himself out of the relevant area. It was, um, it was because the keeper was injured, though. Did you hear that? Hassan Hoodle dug the keeper out afterwards. He was well. The keeper, the in, keeper was trying to uh, was not able to kick the ball and all this kind of stuff. But yeah, you know. and afterwards Hassan Hoodle said, "Oh well, the goalkeeper was injured, and so that's I think that's why Ward Prowse felt he needed to go back there." But surely you either start there or you don't just suddenly panic and run back. I don't, I, yeah, I don't know exactly what was going on there, but it seemed they had a bit of an issue in match of the day with Hassan Hoodle seemingly blaming his injured goalkeeper, who, mm. of course, Hassan Hoodle could have taken off long before that if he wasn't capable of defending a free kick by himself. But yeah. there was high drama there and there was poor Mope having missed a load of chances recently, then scores two late equalizers both of them i think during the week yeah. so he was yeah, well obviously brighton haven't won a game in uh i believe oh, no. three months but i mean but i mean again he's uh, we can we just say again what an excellent job graham potter is doing there <laughs> is it, is it uh, actually <laughs> is it actually three months <laughs> well, it's nine right. games i think he's, he's without a game uh, it, uh, without a win at least nine i think it's actually 10 i think it's 10 games eight draws mm. i believe that's brighton's job. recent record but he's doing an unbelievable job uh and i mean you know potter for england yeah, no, they haven't won since the 22nd of September in the League Cup. Lost Premier League win, 19th of September. And we're in December now. So, okay, but, you know, very few defeats in that in that run. And they've only lost to Manchester City and Aston Villa in that time. You know, Aston Aston Villa. Was that Stephen Gerrard's Aston Villa? Four games ago. Could well have been. Rory Smith is on with Miguel today to talk about Chelsea being beaten by West Ham and also events in the Bundesliga, which Ken is going to get into in the report on sport as well. That's after a quick update following another successful edition of the Second Captain's Christmas Sports Book Show last week in the World Service. Sinead O'Carroll went above and beyond this year by recording that chat. On, was it the very day she was due to give birth, Murph? Uh, I, I think she was due the, the following day. <laughs> <laughs> it was in and about anyway. She has since given birth to Within a lovely baby girl. 24 hours exactly. of her due date, for sure. Uh, she has since given birth to a lovely baby girl called Danny. So massive congratulations to Sinead and Lorcan on the new arrival. I think it happened three days after we recorded. So we didn't cut it too fine. Thank you, Danny, for the, the taking The next working your time day there. is how uh, she described <laughs> it to me. So. No word yet on whether... Uh, born, Sinead tells us, on the 29th of the 11th, which is a terrible GEA birthday, says Sinead. I guess because... Well, the kids it gonna is going to be in with older be kids in the, in the age yeah. group. Is that it? Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Got to think you want to be aiming for the, like, the first two weeks of January, really. Give the kid every chance. But listen, listen you know. We're, if Danny has the mental fortitude, Murph, she'll make yeah. it to the top regardless There's, of this. Nothing can stop her. No word yet on whether she's a World Service member. I think the rule is it's okay for the kids of World Service members to listen on their parents' accounts for the first six months of their lives. And after that, yeah, membership after that. must be taken out in the child's name. We're, we're trying to run a freaking business yeah. here, guys. You know? A <laughs> uh, couple of honourable mentions for the book slot that we didn't get to on Friday as well. Anyone who listened to the Where Is George Gibney series would have heard Trish Carney speaking brilliantly on that. And she's equally as impressive telling her story in Above Water, describing Maliki Clerken in the Irish Times this weekend as the year's most inspirational memoir. And the great George Hamilton has his own memoir out as well. 
It's called The Nation Holds Its Breath, which I'm reading at the moment and I'm thoroughly enjoying. So just wanted to add those ones into the mix if you're thinking of books for Christmas. To hear the list in full and that podcast in full, you got to sign up to the World Service and go back and listen to Friday's show. Ken, report on sport, please. Well, it was a pretty pretty exciting uh, weekend, I guess, on the Premier League. Um, with West Ham, as we've been talking about, shaking things up. Um, <laughs> that was not a result that I saw coming. But I suppose, you know, when you're Chelsea and you're missing, like, you know, if you're missing Kante, you're missing Kovacic, you've got Jorginho injured, you know, don't be surprised if things start to kind of... <laughs> You're still yeah. not starting Lukaku, even though is, is he is he well is he, is he fit, back you know, fit or not? Is he you know? fit? He sort of seems to need it need to take a while to get up to full fitness. Uh, but then Havertz got injured. I'm not sure how bad that that one's going to be. Um, he obviously was replaced at, at half time, um, and then the goal that went in was just. I mean, it was obviously unlucky, um, but really Chelsea. Um, you know, looked it looked a little bit rickety, and this has been happening now for a little while. And this is the moment. It's also which their goalkeeper giving away a terrible penalty and getting caught at his near post. For did that. you think you know the first I mean? one was his fault, though? I thought that. I mean, that was was it his fault or was it Jorginho's fault? I mean, Jorginho gave him a terrible pass. Terrible for pass, but he still he took a touch and he did have time. I I, I think he had he a time a to second ro- touch. He, he had time yeah. to rose at it, Murph, didn't he? He did. He did. He definitely he had did. time to corner it. Anyway, you know, it's, it's, yeah. it could have been. Uh, but he, yeah. And then the uh, I didn't really even blame him that much for the freakish third goal because it was kind of like you know it's the last thing that anyone expected was going to happen like a ball flying towards the near top corner from that angle just wasn't really on anyone's agenda so um yeah, I mean, I think it's it's it becomes a, a damaging defeat for Chelsea. The Christmas charitable season has obviously begun early in the year. <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh this is God. the time of good cheer, I suppose, Ken, why not? <laughs> um, Jonathan Pierce is co-commentator here. Um, <laughs> the, You're all wonderful. <laughs> um, but it becomes a, a damaging defeat in the context of Liverpool winning a game in the manner which we saw happen a lot in the season when they won the title. Uh, and when they came close with the 97 points by, by winning, you know, in the 94th minute at Wolves, a, a team that looked that looked as though, okay, they they did manage to end this run that Liverpool have been on for, for several months of scoring at least twice in every game. Um, so that was uh, that was already history by the time Virgil van Dijk knocked the ball up the wing to Mohamed Salah. But um, you wouldn't have expected what was about to happen to happen. I mean, it was just a brilliant piece of play by Salah. And then he gives it to Origi in a really good, good position. Origi is able to do the rest. And again, you're sort of like, what is happening with Salah? Like, why Why have they got to this point? Um, every game he's doing this. I mean, every game isn't isn't true. I mean, it's not like so they've won every game. But his performance level has been so insanely high compared to not just everyone else in his team, but everyone else in the league, that you're sort of like, well, well, you know, how long How long do you think you can let this one drag on? It's turning into this kind of quite weird standoff. Salah had some quotes um, over the weekend, which he had given, I think, earlier in the week um, to like Egyptian media talking about, you know, around the time that the Ballon d'Or was being awarded, which was, you know, Monday or whatever. Uh, and he was saying, you know, I want to stay here. I keep saying I want to stay. I keep saying I want to stay at Liverpool. Um, but, you know, they just, it's up to them. 
if it was up to them, I'd, you know, if it was up to me, I'd stay, but it's up to them. So what he means is <laughs> I've, I've told them what it's going to cost them for me to stay. It's up to them whether they want to say yes. And if they don't, then I'm going to be out of here. Although that then raises the question of where else are you going to go? This is obviously the game that Liverpool are playing because they're looking at, you know, Salah in this in these quotes also said, you know, I'm I'm very flattered to hear of Xavi's interest in signing me for Barcelona. Mm-hmm. It is normal that when a club such as Barcelona, <laughs> uh, it is a dream to, but it is a dream. It's a fever dream for like it's a delirious <laughs> dream for Barcelona to, that they could sign Mo Salah, but they can't. They can't afford him. If Mo Salah wants to do what uh, what um, Dani Alves has done and signed to play for Barcelona virtually for, for for like a nominal fee, I'm sure they would take Mo Salah. But does he? Yeah. is that what he wants to do? I would be surprised. I mean, he says he wants to stay in the Premier League because it's the strongest league, and also I'm sure he uh, makes plenty of money there. Um, uh, I mean, Barcelona lost. They they sort of the first defeat of the Xavi time. Um, lost at home over the weekend, uh, 1-0. Um, you know, even Xavi can't win every game. You know, they've got their own battles. Like, the battle to sign Mo Salah is not one they're going to be getting involved in, I feel. Although, where else is he going to go? You know, when you look around Europe, and this is what's... This is kind of this the situation we, we're seeing, um, is that, that these... European clubs, most of the European clubs are just no longer able to compete. Um, you know, there's nobody really in Germany apart from from Bayern who are unlikely to compete for, you know, one of the highest paid players in the world as he, you know, he's nearly 30 years old, as people keep saying. Um, I don't think they're going to be in the market. There's nobody in, in Italy really who can do it. In Spain, there's only Real Madrid and they are signing uh, Kylian Mbappe, it looks like, which is probably enough for them to chew on for one season. Maybe, maybe they want Holland as well. Um, and then there's there's maybe PSG. I mean, PSG have had have some problems with with big signings. I don't know if you've noticed, Owen, what's been happening there. I mean, they they had another draw. They played against Lens. Uh, they needed Vinaldum to equalize for them in the last minute. Um, Luis Suarez had some quotes about how, yeah, you know, I was talking to Messi, and he says it's really cold there. Uh, and he's had some real problems <laughs> adapting to the cold, particularly in the snow. So it's going to be, you know, it's tough. He's finding it hard. Well, and, you, and you realize that Messi's never really had to, had to do this. <laughs> he hasn't had to do this in years. You know, I mean, occasionally he'd have to go and play Shakhtar or whatever. Spartak Moscow or somewhere. Yeah, but like uh, it wasn't a case nice of... Nice for a change, but you wouldn't be living there. Like. Here I am in Lens. Like, you know, that, that sort of damp cold that gets into your bones. You know, it's just not something that's featured um, hugely in his life. Uh, living just outside Barcelona as he has been for uh, for most of it, um, but you know he's doing his best. He's plugging away. Um, there was actually an incredible uh, statistic that I saw over the weekend. Um, see if you can. Well, look, I've probably given away the answer here. Uh, to be fair, but see if you can guess uh, who this is about. If I look at the statistic of um, uh, goals minus xg, that is to say, you know, goals g is the number of goals that I've scored. Uh, and XG, XG, is the uh, number of goals I've been expected to score based on the shots I've, I've taken in the league. And I take the, the first figure, that's the number I've scored, and I subtract from that the second figure, the number I should have scored. Who do you think has the lowest figure in all of League 1 uh, for that? <laughs> like who, who, has, who has most drastically underperformed out of the 501 players listed here on wow. fbref.com. 501 players this year. Who is the one who has most drastically underperformed their XG? 
I'm going to give me a second here. Couldn't be the great Leo Messi, could it? No, incorrect, Owen. It is uh, Terem Muffy, a Nigerian <laughs> forward, Nigerian foreign at Lorient, who has scored, uh, well, he's underperformed his XG by, I believe, 3, 3.9. There's, a, there's quite a lot of goals that he's left out there. Uh, failing to score. No, it's actually not. It's not Lionel Messi. But I'll tell you what, Owen, you weren't that far wrong because <laughs> number five hundred out of five hundred and one players in terms of uh, goals wow. minus expected goals is Kylian Mbappe, <laughs> and number and number four hundred and ninety nine is Lionel Messi. <laughs> wow, like, it's unbelievable. Now the other the the thing that you do have to keep in mind is that. Uh, if you look at who's got the most shots per game, shots or shots per 90, because he hasn't necessarily played every game, but which player is taking more shots per 90 minutes than any other player in Ligue 1? Messi and Mbappe. It's actually the other one, Lionel Messi. Lionel Messi, <laughs> 4.6 shots per 90, and, wow. Mbappe three, and Mbappe, 3.97 shots per 90. So when you see that they've massively underperformed their expected goals, what it means is that they're getting more chances than anybody and missing all of them. I mean, Messi has scored one goal from 35 shots, uh, and Mbappe has got seven from 59, but a lot of them were scored sort of earlier in the season, uh, and he's he's also he, he's been struggling for goals uh, more and recently. And who was... So, who was, who was Bottom or slash top of this list again? Oh, oh you name? mean who is the well, uh, the lad from Lorient? Oh, uh, his name was excuse me, Kieran. His name was Terra Muffy. M O F F I. Terra Muffy yeah. is he is number one. Mbappe is two. Messi is three. I mean, who cares what the metric is? Quite frankly, he yeah. should still be very, very proud of himself. Well, this is you know this is the metric that says I'm you know I really I'm the worst player. At ah, in, who in the league. ah, come on, he's showing up for chances. He's got he's getting he's getting in the right positions. You miss hundred percent of the shots you don't take, kid. Well, that's, that. that's true, and there's a lot of players missing a lot of shots that don't show up on that, that aren't captured. Exactly. This is this See? only captures the players who misses the shot who missed the shots they do take the men in the arena the men in the arena who are missing the most shots well uh, whatever there's I 501 mean, men in this arena and you know <laughs> these are the ones these are the worst these are so, the bottom feeders that's kind of strange so maybe PSG will be looking for a, a reliable scorer you know maybe they, they could find room on the on the roster for Mo but like you're not looking at a, at a whole lot of options um, and this seems to be the gamble that Liverpool are, are taking, you know, in terms of the, you know, this, you know. Um, but why not, take the gamble? I mean, it's so bizarre. I, know, I, I mean, really the, the money know. you would need to spend to just replace someone of that ability I dwarfs, know. like, I just, it's utterly insane. And like, what Liverpool player could possibly stand up in that dressing room and say, well, you're paying Mo this, so, you know. Give me, yeah. show me the money. I mean, like the guy is. Well, they will do it. I mean, of course they do. If I'm Virgil van Dijk, I'm doing it. If I'm Sadio Mane, I'm doing it. And I, and if, yeah. I think the other point is, if I'm a player, Liverpool are looking to sign in the future. I'm absolutely doing it. So that could be the fear that they, the new player, any new player to try to sign, yeah. is going to say, "Well, I want to be but level game with that Mo out, Salah." There. Yeah. Game he's going to like, ask for Salah type money. I mean, Salah is like a, a player on his, you know, third contract. I guess is it his third contract with the club. Um, who has uh, th- this would be his third contract I, I believe uh, who has you know scored a phenomenal number of goals broken records won the biggest prizes I mean he's entitled to ask for more than just some hmm. young if you've young got 19 player. goals and 9 assists by the 4th of December then you, sure t- put your hand out <laughs> otherwise get back in line <laughs> get back in line um, so so that was uh, that was big win for, for them obviously Man City won uh, against Watford um Looking pretty, 
uh, looking like the, the mechanism was purring uh, in City's win. So, um, and the what other about poor Jackie one, Grealish, though, I was uh, I was depressing to watch matches today. Well, we yeah, I mean, what? Well, why? Why did you think that? Uh, well, just the rank desperation on his face to try and score a goal. Yeah, but did you? He at least he was coming close to doing so. You know, I mean, at, least, at least he was sort of. He's, at least he's on the field, I suppose. I thought he was. He was. Um, he was a bit better than he has been. You know, but uh, we we can we'll ask uh, we'll ask Miguel and and Roy about that. I think that's uh, that is an interesting one, just in terms of his. You know, I mean, how how he's he's just not really the player that he was. I mean, everybody kind of expected this, but. I think everyone expected maybe it would go a little bit better than it has. Mm. He has had the England, uh, the post-England uh, Euro 2020 syndrome, sure. Um, but look, um, what else is going on? There was obviously the first game, um, Ralph Rangnick finally taking charge, having um, completed all his paperwork, and he's finally entitled to take charge of a Manchester United game, uh, and they play at home against Crystal Palace and win the game 1-0. And could you see the signs... Well, not really. Uh, <laughs> I had to watch this one back, um, as they, it wasn't um, it wasn't broadcast. Uh, had to watch it back later on, um, and it was interesting actually to see that you could already see the you could already see some some big differences. I mean, one of the stats they had was the sort of obvious um, one ball of, recoveries. Yeah, which was which period. was already which was already twelve compared to seven being the highest figure in the rest of the seasons. That's a big change already. I mean, it reminded me a bit of the uh, of the first uh, game um, Jurgen Klopp took charge of at uh, Liverpool, which was uh, a game, Liverpool away to Tottenham, who were themselves at that time just settling into, you know, it was only Pochettino's like 13th or 14th game. And they were also kind of getting used to the style. And it was one of the most ridiculous games. Like it was a nil-nil draw. And it was just one of these. It was. It looked. It looked ridiculous. The, the players were running around so fast, trying to impress their managers, <laughs> and then we started to drop like flies in the second half. Like I remember Coutinho going off in that game. Like, and it looked like. Remember the crawl. You know that the triathlete, the, <laughs> yeah. the triathlon thing. You know he's. Yeah. Like, you know, but they, this they just was for fourth place. <laughs> they just yeah. wanted to the show the kicker right at the end of that clip. I love that so much. <laughs> they just wanted to show everyone. You know, oh look, we're working really hard now. And Cristiano Ronaldo at the end of this game was like that. I don't know if you. I don't know if you actually saw the last few minutes of the game, um, as the ball as it went into injury time. Ronaldo a couple of times the ball came to him and he was physically unable to do anything with it other than sort of flap at it. You know what I mean? Like he he fell over a couple of times. He there was one on the sort of halfway line, one out by the touch line. He was collapsing like it was, and and the crowd was encouraging him by shouting. You know, but it's like, Ronaldo, what are you doing? I've never seen you like this. But this was at the end of a game, which is, uh, you know, his manager says to him, what he did against the ball today, chapeau. So uh, Ronaldo getting getting, uh, <laughs> getting praise for his against the ball work. Um, what, how, it's, what he's, it's what he's built a career on is, is that <laughs> exactly. sort of stuff. Yeah. No goals. I don't know how many kilometers, but like, do he? You just don't get the same credit for for, for kilometers as you do for goals. What about Fred uh, though? This is is, is Fred uh, going to be Fred. the linchpin? Are we going to be looking at Fred Ball for the next six months at Manchester <laughs> Fred, United? Fred Ball. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was a great goal. Yeah. I mean, with his right foot, laughs Ralph Rangnick afterwards. He was—he actually started just, laughing. He goes, "Oh, he scored with his right foot. Did you see that? I didn't think he could kick it with his right foot." But anyway, uh, his his strong right right foot—that was more of Ralph's uh, 
Rob's dry wit. Uh, but it was a lovely, a lovely goal. I mean, maybe it was, maybe it was because it was right. You know, it was like uh, Henderson the other day with the left foot against Everton. Maybe you know when you're on your weak why, foot. It's, ex- it's exactly why Andy Bremer took that uh, World Cup winning penalty with his bad foot. You know, you really? just you put so much concentration onto the strike with your bad foot that it actually it helps the direction. Did he the do idea. that? Is that, yeah. was that is that correct? Yeah, yeah well, that's it, he, well, I think he, I think he had a. Uh, I, I don't think oh, Andy yeah, had, a bad, now, had a, I don't think Andy Bramer had a bad foot in the same way that we have a bad foot. Yes, um, mm. you know, I think his bad foot was of a high was of a high level. But that is interesting. I haven't I haven't heard that mm. before. That apparently he was able to. He was more careful with the placement with his so called weaker right foot. Yeah, was it his right? Uh, was yeah, it his left. Yeah, uh, penalty bad foot. <laughs> <laughs> Just don't mind me. <laughs> Bad foot. I don't know if Google's going to uh, respond to that. Ah, oh, it's a YouTube clip. I'm going to have to listen to some audio here. You just fire. You just yeah. furrow your own. Yeah, brow. Just, That's not what to do. You can you can furrow your brow while you're doing it while you're plowing your own furrow there. Uh, Ken, what else has happened? Yeah, the thing. Well, the thing that struck you about the Fred shot was how he just guided it in. You know, it was like um, he didn't really use so much. It was like Henderson against Everton. It was like Barnes against uh, Harvey. You know, the Harvey Barnes for Leicester against Villa, showing how easy it actually is to score. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> but, you know, when you saw that, you're like, wow, the goal is absolutely massive. Massive. Like he's just rolled out there. Like the keeper has no chance whatsoever of getting it. All he's done is just remained completely mm, calm and then just going, look, this is going to be simple. I'm just going to pass the ball in there. That that was with his, Harvey Barnes is right-footed, I can tell you. Uh, that was uh, well, uh, an example of the same thing. But just I have know. some information, Ken. Yeah, go on. Although he was reportedly naturally left-footed, it is believed that Bremer felt that his right foot was actually more accurate than his left, but that he had a more powerful shot with his weaker left foot. This was shown when in the 1990 World Cup final, Bremer took the spot kick that won West Germany the trophy with his right foot, but four years earlier, Bremer scored in the 1986 World Cup quarter-final penalty shootout against Mexico with a left-foot pile driver. He played it left-back. Wow. There's a lot of information floating around here. Suffice to say, he felt sufficiently comfortable to take penalties with both feet hmm. in World Cup finals. Well done, Murph. I think that uh, Usman uh, Usman Dembele is uh, is like this as well, the Barcelona player. I think that he also has a weird thing where he's better, like his his he's actually left footed, but his right he's better at shooting with his right foot in some weird way. When like which which to me just means well, hang on, that means you're right yeah. footed. <laughs> isn't, <laughs> yeah. isn't that what it means? But uh, I think I think he said something along those lines. Some people are just a little bit special in this way. Mm. Um, just uh, Rangnick said a couple of uh, interesting things. Well, the what were the interesting things about the United game was that you could you could see immediately some change. I mean, he was saying, "Look, we can't." You know, I've had one training session; it was ridiculous. He started complaining about the weather. He started saying, "Well, it was the the most crazy wind and rain. You know, it was unbelievable." And the guy's like, "Well, welcome to Manchester." And he goes, "No, no, no. I mean, my assistant said even for Manchester, this is this is crazy. Like, I mean, this is this is nuts." Um, so he'll be looking forward to Storm Barra this week. The Storm Barra will be sweeping across Carrington tomorrow uh, as uh, as Rangnick prepares uh, for the next game. Um, but what he said was that he had, um, you know, gone four two 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 in order to. I mean, he's he's got like a few things that he needs to try and uh, figure out. Number one, how to control the center. Number two, how to attack out wide. Um, answer to the first question by playing basically four guys in the middle that would be Fred McTominay Sancho and Bruno 
uh, with the Rashford and Ronaldo up front. But answer to the second question, have the fullbacks playing effectively like wingers, which meant drop, drop, dropping Aaron Wan-Bissaka, who I think might find himself out of the picture actually quite a lot. You know, I mean, if it's just maybe his skill set doesn't really suit this type of football. You know, he's he is a more defensively oriented fullback, I would say. Uh, his strengths are in the area of defending rather than in uh, attacking. And in the Crystal Palace team, there was a player, Nathaniel Nathaniel Klein, who I think I think his career path maybe is uh, is important of what might be in Aaron Wan-Bissaka's future, but. Uh, so that was that. Um, it was a promising, promising enough beginning, anyway. And uh, we'll see how we'll see how things go for them. What did uh, you Ever- tee up? The- oh, go on, sorry. Everton got rid of Marcel Brands. Owen. the um, blood sacrifice has been made for <laughs> for the uh, for the the problems they had. So they have they have thrown the director of football overboard. He was apparently filmed having a row with a fan. They were like, "You brought in these players," and he was like, "Is it only the players?" Uh, which maybe that was the last straw. I'm not sure because I mean, if it's not the players, he's, he's saying it's Rafa's fault. <laughs> I mean, that's what it sounds like, right? You know, it's like, oh, you tell me these players are bad. Well, you know, have you seen the turkey in the dugout? So, so it just sounds <laughs> like things weren't really going well anymore. And Marcel Browns uh, is uh, has left. Uh, so I don't think anyone in Everton's going to be lamenting him too much. I see you're uh, writing about the Bundesliga in the Irish Times today. This, can you tell us what you were? Well, that was the other thing. Oh, you're interested in the tea up our piece later on? Well, I thought that it was an interesting... I mean, I was looking forward to watching the game because, I mean, there been this argument during the week. Uh, I, I would be one of those, Owen, who feels that Robert Lewandowski was robbed. Mm-hmm. He's been robbed twice now uh, of, of the golden balls that should have been his. He should have a set of two, and instead he's got none because they didn't give it to him uh, in, the, in the season when he won the Champions League. And because they decided not to award it because, you know, the French League and the Dutch League hadn't finished. So the fact that Lewandowski would have won anyway apparently didn't count. So they, they, they didn't award it that season. He didn't get it. And then the the one that's just happened, they gave to Lionel Messi for like just ridiculously. It shouldn't, shouldn't, have, been, shouldn't have been him. It should have been Lewandowski, in my opinion. But, you know, okay, okay. Um, there's a big game for him this week. Uh, this week, uh, Bayern going to Dortmund. Exciting title race. Only one point between them. So far, that is. Only one point between them. Um, are Dortmund going to finally put it up to Bayern, who, remember, have won the last nine league titles in a row and have won the last six of these matches in a row? Answer, not really. Um, they scored after a couple of minutes. Brandt, uh, Brandt scored for, for Dortmund. Then Hummels made a mistake. You know, Muller and Hummels, still the same guys, you know. It's like still the same guys as, as 10 years ago in this fixture. Muller presses Hummels into a mistake. Lewandowski uh, runs through and, and scores a nice goal. Um, and then Bayern score again from another Dortmund mistake. This is Guerrero's clearance into Hummels ricochets and Coleman knocks it in and it's it's kind of like oh, bad goals and they were losing and then uh, and you know the interesting thing about Dortmund really I mean you're watching them there's not actually that much to admire about them these days um, like Bellingham is a good is a Holland? good Holland is the is the only thing the, the, is the only interesting point about the team primarily because Holland is just such a weird player he honestly is such an unusual uh, player to watch like in the first half he should have scored or rather, when I say should have scored, what I say, what I mean is I expected him to score from a situation where he kind of played a one-two and a halfway and is running through. And with the kind of, with the speed and strength that he has, I'm expecting him to go all the way and at least 
you know, make force the goalkeeper to make a save. But actually, his control is sort of so erratic that he kind of doesn't really get the ball properly under control. By the time he's into the box, he's at an awkward angle, shoots across goal, and you're like, well, that wasn't great. Second half, though, he... Um, What's, what's amazing about him is how decisive his movement is. And you can see him sort of tearing around the pitch because he, he obviously draws the eye just because of how big he is. And the ball kind of went out wide, went out in the right wing. And Haaland, who was sort of in the right channel, immediately tears across, like makes this diagonal run towards the far post, uh, dragging his defender with him. And the ball didn't actually come to him because uh, uh, Upamecano, another defender, should have cleared it. It's another defensive mistake. I mean, this is why I'm saying this is a sloppy... All the goals were sort of sloppy. Um, but the ball then is passed to... Bellingham passes it to Holland, who who curls it in beautifully. It's a lovely finish, but again, an, a sloppy move. Um, and you're thinking, well, this is, you know, this is a bit of a... This game's a bit fast and loose, you know. It's all over the shop. But, like, it's, it's set up nicely here. And then just what happened was... <laughs> like, just one of the most ridiculous displays of refereeing and varring that like we've we've yet seen yeah i saw you know, there was a feral righteous sense of injustice in the dortmund side well let's let's hear bellingham here bellingham's in trouble for saying this well for me it wasn't you know he's not even looking at the ball and he's fighting to get it and it hits him i don't even think he's looking at the ball but you know you can look at a lot of the decisions in the game you know you give a a referee that's you know match fixed before the biggest game in germany what do you expect? That's Bellingham. Uh, and and it, his expression Punchy. was so good as well. His expression, he's kind of like, he's sort of raising his eyebrows. He's sort of like shrugging his shoulders. He's like, what do you expect? You know, you can put a match fixture in charge. <laughs> you know, he's going to fix matches. It's <laughs> like, hang on, you can't say that. Uh, what? Like, what is he talking about here? What is Bellingham talking about? Well, what he's, he is referring to the fact that the referee of the of of this of Saturday's game, Felix Fire, who was one of the top referees in Germany, was centrally involved in the Robert Heuser match fixing scandal of two thousand and four two thousand and five, which is the, like the biggest of the last fifty years in Germany. So Heuser was this ref who had uh, who was found guilty of conspiring to rig a bunch of matches in like the lower division. No, none of them were top division matches, but there was at least one German cup match involving Hamburg, which which he fixed. Uh, you know, giving penalties to to Hamburg's opponent, they they end up having to pay compensation to Hamburg. Hamburg's coach was remember remember Topmuller, who was the Leverkusen coach when they mm. got to the Champions League final. He was sacked after the game. You know, there was all kinds of um, consequences from this fixed game. Um, you know, and he and there was second division matches and regional league and all this kind of stuff that he now Zweier, who was then only twenty three in, in two thousand and four, was this guy's linesman. Right, and so uh, there was a, a match between Wuppertal and some other amateur team. <laughs> this is in May two thousand and four, when um, he was approached by Heuter, uh, who said, "Listen, um, here's three hundred euros. I want you to try and avoid, you know, doing doing any, you know, if, if it's if it's marginal and it's against Wuppertal, maybe we can turn a blind eye to that today. You know what I mean, right? It was like that was that that was basically the deal. It was like Wuppertal. I like Wuppertal today, mm. and uh, <laughs> we we like Wuppertal. And uh, Wuppertal, as luck would have it, uh, won the game anyway uh, without without anyone having to give them any special digouts, right? You know, sometimes that happens in a match that's going to be rigged. Um, sometimes it just plays out anyway, the way the conspirators want it to, you know, and nobody has to sort of, nobody has to give a penalty for a foul that happened outside the box or, you know, et cetera, et cetera. 
Um, and that appears to be what happened in this instance. Now, it seems like Felix Vara felt pretty bad about this, although he did ruminate on it privately for quite some many months <laughs> before eventually he was part of a group of four referees who came forward as whistleblowers, I mean, in, in the other sense of whistleblower, to provide the evidence that was to expose this corrupt referee Heuser. But the fact is that he did accept that initial, like what he should have done here for any young referees out there, right? What you do is when someone offers you a bribe is you say, what are you talking about? I can't accept that bribe and alert the authorities. That's what you're supposed to do. Did he do that? No. So he got punished. He actually got a six month ban from the DFB, the German FA for this, but they never told anyone about it. They kept it. They kept the ban secret. They kept the, the secret that they that they had, and nobody said, "Well, hang on, where's your man? Where where where's your man's fire? Like we haven't seen him recently because he was suspended anyway for his own protection because he was because he was involved as a sort of witness in this case. You see what I mean? So, so when so the point is right that when. When Jude Bellingham says he's done match fixing, or if, oh, I can't remember his exact phrase that he uses in that clip, but when he when he uses that phrase, that's not accurate. Okay, the guy has the guy has not ever been found guilty of match fixing. So Bellingham is factually wrong about that. However, I think it is kind of incredible that they still have the when I say sorry when I say they never told anyone about it. They never told. Obviously, I I know about this now. We, it, it, it was reported now. at a later it, date by the media, yeah. right? Dietzeit, the German newspaper in 2014. Like 10 years later, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. 10, ten years after the, the initial uh, incidents, uh, discovered this and, and published, a, published a story about it. But by that time, your man was already established as one of the best referees in Germany. So it just, what it, you know, it's just this principle of like uh, Caesar's wife. You know what I mean? Mm. It's not, it's not, it's not enough Caesar's to be referee clean. must be beyond reproach, Ken. Yeah, you know, that. so evidently no one's really kind of, that. that's not a, a principle they use at the, at the German FA. So it is, it's inc- what Bellingham said is incorrect, but the fact is, this guy doesn't have a, an unblemished record, and surely somebody who is refereeing this biggest game should, especially if they're going to make the kind of mistakes with which he proceeded to, to ruin the second half of the game. Because this is, you know, this is one of those, I mean, it's not like the referees have never ruined games before by yeah, making and they mistakes. Yeah, and they were mistakes, we should say. There was nothing untoward going on. But, no, uh, no, what, no, there were mistakes, but they're terrible mistakes. See, the problem is, when you're making mistakes uh, and you've got VAR, everyone's scratching their head going, how is he making these mistakes? Not giving That's Dortmund, what, not giving Dortmund a penalty was. The so the, fir- was the first one was it was a, was a penalty that Dortmund should have had when you know Haaland, Haaland and Royce won two. Royce runs in and he's just bundled down by Lucas Hernandez, and the Dortmund players run to the ref and he's like, no, and, and Haaland said after the game, I asked him why didn't you at least go and look, and he said, well, there's no need, you know, there's no need. Uh, I've already seen it. And he explained afterwards, I, oh, I already saw the incident. And I, you know, I asked them, was there any other contact? Like, I basically said, look, there's, it's a bit of an upper body contact. We're supposed to be letting the game flow. I'm not giving a penalty for that. Was there any other contact? Meaning, did he, like, did he trip him at all with his, with his legs? And apparently they told him no, which is kind of unfortunate because when you look at the replay, you can see that, yeah, he does as well. You know what I mean? Like, it's, it's, it's just... So... And that's that, that. That was a two all. That was just after Dortmund had equalised. So that's a huge moment in the game. They give, they get a penalty there. Maybe they go on and win this game. But he doesn't give it. He doesn't look at it. And then seventy-seven minute, a corner comes in. There's one of these where the defenders are kind of jumping for it. They sort of almost the two Dortmund defenders collide with each other. Hummels has got his head down. The ball hits him on the elbow. Nobody notices it. Nobody appeals. Thomas Muller, maybe Thomas Muller is like standing right next to Hummels and puts his hand up. 
But then, like, immediately puts it down. Absolutely nobody else. None of the other Bayern players are, are saying anything. The game just goes on. No one has noticed this. And then it's like, no, no, hang on. Hang on. No, no, no. no. Excuse me. Excuse me. No, no, hang on. And point, you know, pointing to his ears. Oh, I better go and look at this. And he goes over and looks, like, officiously at this replay, showing a clearly accidental handball. And then he's like, well, it's a penalty. And, and you're just like, this is, this is just, how are we supposed to swallow this? Like, you know, when you when players are saying stuff like that after the game, then the response of it is you, you get this response where he's going to be punished now, Bellingham that is by the by the DFB because you can't say this kind of thing about a referee. But like you know, I just feel as though with a game like that, you may be Caesar's referee, as you say, Karen. Caesar's referee. Chelsea had been setting the pace for quite a while in this three-way title race, but they have stumbled a couple of times in the last week. So is it time to write them off? Rory Smith in New York Times, how are you? I'm all right, how are you? Good, good, good. Miguel Delaney, how are things? Of the Independent, I should say. Yeah, good, thanks. Good morning. Are we, are, we, are we going to write Chelsea off, Miguel? Uh, not yet, but I, mm. it does feel right now they've got more issues to solve than the other two. And that's not just because they've had the most recent slip. There's been maybe just a few little rumblings of Chelsea for the last few weeks, which seem to be kind of um, waved away by the 4-0 win over Juventus. But I think that probably says more about Juventus than it does Chelsea. Um, because it just it still feels... Like I know Saturday's game was more about the defence not working, given it's been working... like The, the defensive record worsened by 50%, if I'm my maths right there. Uh, but it still feels like the main issue with Chelsea, especially compared to the other two, is that that attack hasn't fully clicked yet. And it means that when in, in any game where the defence isn't as reliable as it usually is, they're suddenly in danger just because they don't really... I mean, it, it, it always feels like when you watch this Chelsea right now, or sorry, most of the time, that they're, they're almost playing within themselves and they're still kind of trying to work out a system. Now, that's, I, I suppose, inevitable, given that... Klopp's been there for six years, Guardiola's been there for five, and Tuchel's been there for ten months. But it's maybe kind of the main difference between the teams right now and just something that Chelsea have an issue with. They've scored 35 goals, though, Miguel. More than, more than, that's more than Man City. Although seven of those goals were in a game against a Norwich team absolutely collapsing. Okay, but they still uh, scored them. And even, say, take three away from that, if you want it, and give them, they'd still be the same as Man City in terms of goals. Right, but, uh, and by I, the way, I'm he, not taking away those three because they scored them, so they've scored more. But, but, but I think the issue there is, especially when you, when, like, when you watch them regularly close, it's, I mean, it, it almost feels like they're, they're more dependent on the state of the game than either side in that, it's, it's actually, it's, it's, it, it's, it's one of those things where it it can be a real toil for them to get one, one ahead. But once they do that mm. and a game opens out, it just suits them better to pick a team off. But they're not quite a system yet in the way the other two are. 
Rory, what do you think? I agree with Miguel that you, there's, there's absolutely no reason to, to write Chelsea off. Yeah, it's far too early. And I, the, the difficulty is that it, it's one defeat to a you know to a good West Ham team. There's no. There's, I think they were fifth at the start of the day. They fourth. They were fourth by the time all the results had rolled in. Like team that's top loses that team that finishes the day fourth isn't isn't a disaster by anyone's stretch of the imagination. But the the two things that kind of make you think, okay, th- this is slightly problematic, are that that it looks like it's going to be another one of those seasons in the Premier League where you're going to need what ninety. Five ninety-six points at least to to win the league. Does it look City certainly look like they're they're gearing up to to put one of those runs together? And Liverpool, although there's a more kind of human quality to Liverpool than, than Man City, <laughs> I think Liverpool always give you a chance um, in a way that City don't. City strangle you. Liverpool will will occasionally, even in the derby in um, in midweek, there was a good like twenty minutes, half an hour where you thought, you know, if Everton nick nick, nick another goal, then Liverpool could lose this. That doesn't really happen with City. But they both look like they're kind of rumbling into that kind of imperial, imperious form, um, and that means that any defeat at all, any draw for, for Chelsea, anyone and for anyone hoping to, to rival them is really damaging. And the other thing that I've, I've been thinking for a while was that even when when kind of Chilwell and Reese James were scoring loads of goals, that that had the air of being something that was slightly unsustainable. There's a, there's a reason that not many teams get to the end of the season with their fullbacks as their leading scorers. James particularly was run, was running really hot and playing brilliantly. He's a superb player, but you, you you're not going to be able to build a title challenge on your on your right wing back scoring most of your goals. It doesn't really work like that. And I I did just wonder even when they were winning games whether that was something something they could they could maintain. And that presents a bit of a problem for Tuchel because he has done such an incredible job. He's actually made management look a little bit too easy since he got to <laughs> Chelsea. That the the impact has been. I don't think I've ever seen anything like it. The impact he had on Chelsea, and you you, you always wondered right what happens when when they hit that first bump in the road, and over the last month that's what they've that's what they've hit. They they drew at home to Burnley, which was just one of those things, and it happens every single team. All three of the teams in the title race have had a result like that this season. Um, then they draw with Man United, and you think, okay, well, you know that can happen. They get you know they they get sucker punched by. By Jadon Sancho, it was a bad touch from Jorginho. Again, it happens. Then they lose at West Ham, and all of a sudden they've, they've only won two of the last five. And you think, okay, this is now a little bit of a hiccup for Chelsea. And it's the first time Tuchel's faced that in ten months because he has he, everything's gone so swimmingly. So the test now for Chelsea really is how they respond to it, how quickly they can get out of that slump. One of the big things that that Liverpool and City do, and have done for three years, if you excuse Liverpool last year is that when they have a bad result, whether that's a draw or a defeat, they don't let it linger. They don't let it become something. They bounce They bounce back straight away. So City lost to Palace, and I think have won five on the, on the spin since then. If Chelsea want to keep pace with these two teams who are setting an insane pace at the top, they're going to have to... They, the slump has to stop immediately. You can't afford to have... You can maybe have two or three weeks where things don't quite go your way, but you probably can't have a month where, where you're not getting a lot of points all of the time. Mm. But what you're saying about um, Chelsea, sort of, you know, when when, when Chilwell and Reese James are scoring for them, are getting goals from sort of unlikely parts of the team, and obviously the forwards haven't really been doing it, and Lukaku hasn't really done it yet, and you know we know about Werner's struggles. It's the same thing not happening to a great extent at Man City. You know, they're they're currently um, kind of being fueled by this unbelievable hot streak by Bernardo Silva, 
He's got seven goals. The next top scorer is, is Gundogan, I think, has three. Foden has three. You know, there's, there's nobody there. And Liverpool almost have this opposite problem of Salah scoring all their goals. I mean, it's not, not exactly right. But Salah and Mane are two of the three top scorers. And they're both going to be gone for five or six weeks. Like, everybody's got some uh, problems of their own. The one thing I would say about that is... Um I mean, we do know what City's issue is. And, I mean, yeah, I think you're, there have been spells this season where we've also talked, we've said the same thing, where either they score and they batter a team or they don't They don't score that first goal and a game becomes a real struggle, like against, say, Crystal Palace. But that's down, down to the striker. But I suppose the compensation for that is that Guardiola's system is so ingrained. I mean, I was I was starting to find Barney for the game on Saturday and he, he made the point when we actually used just before Silva's goal and we're talking about how Chelsea would take the lead and a set piece or something like that, that as yet there's no signature Tuchel Chelsea goal, whereas obviously Manchester City have the one we've seen, it must be over 100 times now since Guardiola's been in England, the, the cut back at the six-yard box and someone at the far post. And so, I mean, no matter, no matter who's on the team, they're going to keep doing that just because of the way they open up teams. With Liverpool, they basically overwhelm you and then suddenly there's attackers coming from all angles, usually, it's Salah or Mane. Uh, so, and, and this speaks to the point that I made just a few moments ago, where I suppose that's a natural consequence of the fact we've got two, probably two, two, or two of the three best managers in the world who've been at both those clubs for half a decade, whereas Tuchel, who he is probably up there with both of them, he's, he's only had that 10 months. And while it, he's still putting in place his own structure and while it's generally worked out at the back and it's easier for players to know where to go when the opposition have the ball... There's still, there's still an element when you watch them that they're kind of overworking things in terms of uh, when they try when they're trying to open opposition sides. It becomes kind of this matrix of passes, as if they're kind of playing within themselves that they haven't fully worked out, and it can make them a little bit slow going forward. There are moments when it clicks, and suddenly you've got a wing back bombing down the wing or, or one of those overlaps that we have seen a few times with Tuchel, but it doesn't feel fully developed yet. And then of course into that. We've got yeah, the issue with Lukaku. Well, it's not quite an issue, but it just he hasn't integrated into this team yet. And and also when he's on the pitch, it does feel like more has to go through him when he's not fully up to speed with what Chelsea want yet. Now that that did happen at Inter Milan at the start as well before he finally found his form there, and he was sensational. Now playing Serie A at the moment is easier to play in England, but I wouldn't have too many concerns. But as Rory says. It might just be too late. They they did they have one quite one little slump last season to be fair, which is around the cup final and then getting beating beaten two one by Villa that almost cost them top four. It should have cost them top four, but they did respond very quickly. They beat Leicester in the league straight after the cup final. It was probably the best time to play that game, and then of course they had the the Champions League final. The only thing I'd say that the difference between between City and Chelsea is it does feel City aren't going to have a twenty five dollars season goal story this season, just as they didn't last season. Liverpool might have two. And although what to be fair, one of them might be Jota. The um the difference is that City share the goals around so democratically. So it could, you know, you've got Sterling, Foden, Mares, De Bruyne, Jesus, um Gundogan, Rodri will get like five a season. Like there's there's just so many people who will score a few goals for Manchester City. They, they, it might be that they don't have that reliable outlet, but they do have so many different players who will chip in with 8, 9, 10, 12. And that, that's enough. The difference with Chelsea, because, as Ken says, like Werner's not really rediscovered that story in touch and as we haven't yet seen the best of Lukaku, you kind of have Rhys James 
and Ben Chilwell, who are not going to be able to maintain that form over the course of the season, I wouldn't have thought. You have Mason Mount, who scores a lot of goals from midfield, but there's not really anybody else who chips in with the same number of goals that you, that you have at City. So it's ju- I just wonder whether they they are... A, t- a team maybe that needs a more prolific striker and the one thing they don't have at the moment, because Lukaku's not quite clicked, I'm sure he will, is that player who can get you 20 goals a season. And that is the, that's the, the difficulty for, for Chelsea, I think, in terms of just winning the sheer number of games you need to win now to win the lead. I still think Chelsea will go really, really close. And I th- to be honest, I think there will be a cigarette paper between all three of them. There's, it might be that the gaps open up towards the end of the season when... You know, if Liverpool are in the Champions League semi-final, maybe they rest players and drop a few points or whatever. But the, I think that there, there isn't much between any of them. They, they all have the air of champions. There's, there's a, there's reason to believe that any of them could win it, and it will be really fine margins. And I, yeah, I just wonder if it depends on how quickly Chelsea can work out how to get their mojo back. To, to, to be fair as well, I mean, Liverpool had their own treaty defeat at West Ham a month ago. Yep. I remember thinking then, uh, Liverpool look a bit too flawed in this title race. So that will probably happen. But if we are going to have a, a league where you have to, where some team has to get win by, or has to get 95 points, which I don't think is good for football, uh, because of what it says, at least give us then a situation where maybe there's three of them going into it on the final day. That, 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 that's what I want out of this season at this point. The funny thing is that that, that season, I get confused with the pandemic, 2019 when City won it yeah. with 98 and Liverpool got 97, that was not a good title race, bizarrely. Because, because it was they just, too yeah, regular. They all yeah. just won. It was, it was really obvious they were all going to win all of their games. Yeah. And, I th- so that I mean, I think Liverpool won the last nine that year, which means that they must have dropped the points that cost them the league in like February. Yeah, it was. It was, not, it, was, I mean, it was those four draws against cost Everton them. and West Ham as well. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And it's. It, I agree with Miguel. I, I don't think that you that the, the situation that the Premier League is in at the moment is particularly healthy. And the, the best gauge for that is the goal differences. So Liverpool, City, and Chelsea are all around or sort of plus twenty five. West Ham will now be plus nine, I think. And nobody else has got a positive goal difference, or certainly didn't before the weekend. That that is bizarre. That there's only four teams in the in the lead with with a positive goal difference. There's nobody nobody else who's who's scored more than they've conceded. That's nuts, and it does suggest that there is there are these kind of three super teams, and that for all we talk about the strength in depth of the Premier League, that that is that is a rel- that's like a relative value. So you, you can have strong teams, but if they're being completely overpowered by these three super clubs. It's not great for the sort of competitive balance of the league. Yeah, just some, I didn't mean to actually spend quite so long talking about this, but I found it quite interesting just in terms of these, um, you know, Chelsea and City and sort of who's going to have more problems scoring. If you compare the two mega signings of the summer, Lukaku and Grealish, which one of them do you think is going to get their act together first? I'd say Lukaku. Really? Because I thought yeah. there was, I thought there was some good signs from Grealish this weekend. You know, he's playing. Uh, he's sort of playing false nine or whatever, but he 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 just looked a bit more lively than he has been. I mean, his <laughs> his performances. I mean, Guardiola keeps saying, "Oh, his performances have been very good." They have not been good. Like this, this is not. This is compared to what he was last season. This guy is a has disappeared as a player. Uh, and, and it's actually it's made all the more pronounced given Bernardo Silva, who was one of the players he was supposed sort of supposed to replace, has has upped it so so much. But I I, do, I mean, it, it does feel. One of the differences as well is that 
Lukaku's role with Chelsea is so much more pronounced and visible. Whereas with City, even though Grealish costs a hundred million, it's basically like all all their attacking midfielders almost interchangeable to some degree. It won't actually change how the team plays. They're all basically no, it hasn't happened yet, but they all generally put in kind of eight out of ten performances, and City just win so many games four or five nil. So Grealish's individual form feels less of an issue, and it just means that any little nice touches or goals will obviously stand out. But but generally, they're all just part of the system. Whereas with Lukaku, it's such a, a specific role in that Chelsea team, there'll always be more focus on it. I, I think it's actually harder for Grealish to 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 stand out at City, to, to not just to be the player that, that he was at Villa. I don't think it's possible to play like that in a Guardiola system, to, to be that to, that kind of player, that kind of ultimate individual. Um, but I think, I mean, what would, what would Grealish have to do to really stand out at Manchester City? Because as, like Miguel says... Doesn't really matter which which of the three or four of them play. They they play exactly the same way. They make all the same passes. They do all the same things. They score all the same goals. It's Grealish is just now he's a cog in, in Guardiola's machine. Everything at City is is subsumed by by Guardiola. It's why it's nonsense when City get upset that their players don't win individual individual awards. It's because literally all of the credit is being given to your coach. That's what happens. There's no there, there's no room for individuals in the way Guardiola sees football. So I'm not quite sure there's any way that Grealish can. I don't, if, funnily, not, not that I, I think Grealish is a bad signing or that he's playing badly or anything particularly, but I, I, I don't think there's any way that he can succeed in the way that we conceive, we conceive of success at Manchester City because he's just another, just another part. Well, if he did what Bernardo Silva's doing, I don't know. Yeah, I, I, I mean, yeah, that's, that's, true, what, yeah. that's what will happen though, isn't it? Because, I mean, it's all, you know, especially given he's such an individualist as a player, Grealish, or has been a villa. And what you always hear when you talk to, or players themselves have spoken about it, you hear it when you talk to people who work with Guardiola, that that first few months of that first season with him, it basically requires you to kind of like learn football again. Um, and then, you know, learn a mental map of the pitch. So there's always going to be, I suppose, that little subsiding uh, subsidence at the very start. But then you, you, you can always see it now. In about a year, maybe six months, he suddenly have this, he'll have this burst of form. We'll be talking about, wow, Grealish. He's back in all this, but it's as Rory says. You know, it's okay. Yes, it's a reflection of Grealish, but it's also just part of the city system. And once you're once you're in tune to what Guardiola wants, I think no matter how many the the the, the one difference maybe between Grealish and Silver is that Grealish costs hundred million quid. So when he scores those goals, people will be like, "Well, yeah, that's that's Jack Grealish scoring the goals that you want. You expect from a hundred million pound signing." The the mad, the slightly madder thing is the fact that City were willing to let Silver go in the summer. It's nuts. Ken, that's yeah. enough. Yeah, that's enough in the Premier League. Ken, I know you've got the Bundesliga on your mind today, so do you want to bring the guys in on this? Well, it's it's kind of it's all it's all related, you know. It's all we're all it's all part of the same tapestry. Own, um, and I was watching the Dortmund Bayern game this weekend, and I have to say, I mean, we've been talking about how how disappointing really the level of the game was. Um, you know, we've already we've already sort of been through a few of the issues. Obviously, it ends in this big. Uh, as Holland described it, a scandal, a ref. It's a very scandal with the ref and uh, Bellingham, you know, <laughs> pointed to the referee's match-fixing history uh, and he's being charged. Uh, and I'm kind, of, I'm kind of scratching my head going, yeah, but why is this guy, why is this guy actually refing your biggest game? Could you not find somebody who hadn't sort of been associated with the biggest match-fixing, match-fixing scandal in living memory? But that stuff aside... Um, I want to ask you both about about the sort of big picture here because the level of this game was not really that good. We've been talking about a Premier League where everyone has the German coach and Chelsea, to their misfortune, have all these Bundesliga forwards, none of whom has managed to... Pulisic, Havertz, 
Werner, none of them has managed to hit a, even a one in four goal scoring ratio. The Germans, <laughs> as, as, Harry, as Harry Edenap would say, for, who signed the Germans? For did he bring the did he bring the Germans in? But look, um, there is a there is a problem here, not just for the Bundesliga, but for but for European football in general. I think. I mean, you've you've been talking, Rory, about the um, you know the the Premier League maybe look, not looking that healthy, given that you've got these three sort of super teams um, blasting everyone else. Only four teams have a positive. Um, goal difference, but it still looks a lot healthier than um, than this league, uh, where Bayern are going to win tenth, their tenth in a row. Um, the, you know, the big game is decided by just mistakes by defenders, by by guys like Hummels who've been around forever, um, referees, you know, who took bribes, and uh, <laughs> I mean, this this is not a healthy situation at all. No, not at all. And no, no question that the, the Premier League, compared to all of the major European leagues, is a is a is a picture of health, um, financial and in terms of like competitive level. I think Miguel has been talking about this endlessly on Twitter, so I'm I'm sure that he will have mm. a strong and entrenched opinion. But the one thing that I do agree with him, and I hate I hate agreeing with Miguel, but the one thing I think where I think he's right is that I it is surprising that Bayern have won nine in a row, and it will be ten in a row. And there doesn't seem to be a huge amount of anger in Germany about it, or there there doesn't seem to be that same existential questioning that I think would occur if Man City won 10 Premier League titles in a row. I think in England we would have a conversation about whether this was a good thing. There doesn't seem to be that same level of kind of discontent and worry and doubt in Germany. And I don't know whether that's because of the nature of Bayern's success, which, you know, to an extent you can you can project the building blocks as being evidence of virtue, that, you know, they are, they are Bayern are well run, they do make good decisions, they 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 do a lot of stuff right by Munich, so you can maybe excuse it that way that it's kind of, it's like a reward for how, for, for how efficient they are. I don't know whether it's just they're conditioned in some way over the course of, of what, the last 30, 40 years to just assume that the default status is Bayern Munich win the lead unless they mess it up. But it, there is no question that, that it is incredibly unhealthy for the Bundesliga that that Bayern, it's now Bayern's personal property, and that that you know it's the the league title is basically as competitive as Belarus's, where Bate Borisov just win it every year, so they've got lots of Champions League money. The, that's not great for the Bundesliga as a product. It's not great for the for the German fans. It's not great for the for the thing, for the for the sport as a whole, I guess. And it's the same in Italy, where where Juve did it nine years in a row. And again, there was no real kind of sense of, hang on, this isn't great, is it, if this team just gets to win the lead every single year. Um, that conversation about competitive balance, about the super clubs walking away, dominating domestic leads, doesn't, I might be wrong, and if there's listeners who can put me right, that's great, doesn't seem to be quite as pronounced in continental in continental Europe as, as I think it would be if the same thing applied in England. And I don't know why that is. I, I suspect there's quite a lot of factors going into it. We just, but it know, is like, real. It's really worrying. When a major league, I mean, like in smaller countries, I think it should be. It's almost. It feels like it's more possible just because the sized leagues can can inevitably produce one huge club, a satellite club. But it shouldn't happen in one of the five major leagues. And it's. it's I think I find it remarkable we've got to this level, and there isn't a huge inquest about what German football can do about this. I mean, you, well, I mean, you, it's happened you, in it's it's happened in three out of the five. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And, uh, but, but at least, I suppose, Paris Saint-Germain, there has been some breaks in between, mostly down to how, how Paris Saint-Germain are run. Juventus' spell has ended through, basically, their own um, 
some of some bad decisions really and how they have this suddenly this squad on blow full of players and bloated contracts they can't shift just kind of creating this stagnation so people will inevitably point to how oh how well Bayern are run but there's just two things I mean, they, there, they, they are you know in in Bayern yeah. in fairness to Bayern unlike Juventus or Paris Saint-Germain they they are able to win the Champions League I mean they've they've done it twice yeah. in the last decade you know what I mean they they are genuinely a, a, a they're a real super club not like a kind of a just you know, uh, bullying the rest of the the teams in a mediocre league. Well, they are they are doing that as well, but they they can. They are also reliant. They just, be just not, before we talk about them being too virtuous, you know, there was the annual general meeting uh, issue a couple of weeks ago, which was completely chaotic because uh, because of their Qatar sponsorship. So you but, know, but, that, that, uh, that's in the mix there as well, Miguel. Sorry. Yeah, I, I was going to say that. I mean, I was that's that, that's one of the points I was going to say because. I mean, Rory mentioned there how Germany's become used to Bayern winning. It's just the way it is. But I suppose what sums up the issue is, I mean, for most of Bundesliga history since 1963, that was basically from from when, when Bayern finally got it together in the late 60s. It's basically been spells of Bayern wins. Usually got a two or three wins in a row and always at least interrupted by one league elsewhere or occasional spells like Borussia Mönchengladbach in the 70s, Hamburg in the 80s, Dortmund in the 90s and then in 11-12. And I suppose the kind of the financial state of football at that time, where there wasn't so much money in the game, it was it wasn't run as well. Always meant that money couldn't have the same effect. So there was always going to be these gaps, or this it was basically there was more margin for error. Sorry, there were errors had a greater effect. Whereas now, with the kind of the the financial size of the game and how big Bayern are, errors are almost completely eliminated. And that, that it comes back to what we're saying about Manchester City and Liverpool, where the distorting effect of money is it, it's, it's actually starting to take away what what had been football's kind of classic unpredictability to a certain degree. And, and yeah. Saturday almost summed it up. Where I mean, every time we have one of these games, there's always these kind of it's almost discussions of as, as if it's kind of moral failings on the part of Dortmund. Well, they just don't have they don't have the bottle for it. But I mean, well, how they, can they have they the bottle? Got absolutely done. They got absolutely. Ridden but, by the referee. But, <laughs> I mean, yeah, well, yeah, but but, uh, uh, but but okay, but but even but even then, how can they really compete? And like Bayern Munich are twice the size of Dortmund financially. And what sums it up with one of the Dortmund players who made the mistake and let them back into the game, Max Hummels, he, he went to Bayern when he was good enough. And well, he went from Bayern to Dortmund, <laughs> then back to Bayern, and now finally it, and back to exactly Dortmund. Exactly, when, when Bayern decided they didn't need him any longer, when they were able to dispense with him. How can you compete when that's the case? And it just, it, just it, it sums up the joke that German football is in right now, where they do have this financial mega club. And again, it comes back to what Owen referenced there about Qatar. What should really be happening is a huge discussion about how finances can be redistributed or something along those lines, to just restore some elements of competitive balance. But of course, because Bayern need to keep pace with the rest of Europe, with the super clubs in Europe, that's just not going to happen. But at the same time, they're, they're, they're getting into deals like that with Qatar, specifically because they have to try and compete with, I mean, ultimately, the, the big Premier League clubs who are, yeah. you know, so, well, so financially boosted. This is the problem. This is and the problem, and state-owned know. clubs. Like the German, the German way of organizing football, I like it. I think it's, yeah, I think yeah. it's a good, it's good. But the problem, the problem that it has is that it, it, it's, it would be a great way to organize your league in the absence of a gigantic, unregulated, billionaire-funded pirate competitor just offshore, which going to just, which is just going to take what it wants from you, you know, including all of like the coaching talent and playing the playing talent. The Premier League clubs just take. What they want from from Bundesliga clubs, really? We, well, yeah, and the, the, the to be this isn't this isn't a popular argument at all, but this is where fifty plus one is a problem because the only 
the only realistic way as football is currently structured for any other German club to, to try and compete with Bayern would be to find some sort of shuddered adiona, whether that's a nation state or a you know a criminal enterprise or whatever it might be, mm. who is going to pump a load of money in and let them not not even buy their best players, but just keep their best players. Because the problem is that that all of the German clubs sell. Now there was a, a, a fee, like a theory a couple of years ago. I remember speaking to a couple of sporting directors in Germany who said that they thought that the Premier League's financial dominance might help because. German clubs could now sell to the Premier League rather than selling to Bayern Munich. And I know Tyler Adams at Leipzig is, has, is one of a handful of players who've come out and said that he doesn't really understand why German teams accept offers from Bayern Munich. Because you're just, if you're Dortmund or if you're Leipzig or, or Gladbach or whoever, and you're trying to compete with this club, why on earth are you, are you, when they come and say, we want to buy your best player, why are you saying, well, all right, if you pay this much, you can? Why, why are you not going to... Well, the player has got the player has a say in that as well. I mean, the, the player, player has a say, but why, why are you not going to an English club? As soon as Bayern show any interest, going to English clubs and saying, look, come on, we'll do you a deal. We'll do, pay, pay us up front, we'll do you a deal. You know, Bayern are saying, well, they'll pay 50 million. Well, you know, we'll... You can have him for, for, for 45, for 48, just, just so you don't have to sell to Bayern. So if you've got a player who's good enough for Bayern Munich, you can be sure there are English clubs interested. The The problem with 50 plus one is you can't do that. There is no... You speak to people who work on the financial side of German football and the clubs are, the clubs are totally kind of detached from reality as to, their, as to their own valuations for external investment. And even when you then get external investment coming through to create a challenger, as happened with RB Leipzig... You get this resentment where German fans, and it's not for me to judge fans, but where German fans wanted Bayern to win the lead ahead of RB Leipzig, I think last season or two seasons before when Leipzig looked like they might be able to challenge, because Leipzig got their money the wrong way. And you think, well, that's virtuous and it's understandable and it's it, there's a sort of puritanical element to it. But surely the, the greater good of German football is that at the start of the season there should be some doubt as to who wins the league. And there isn't any at all at the moment. And that... That is incredibly dangerous, and if you if you can't control the if you won't accept investment of money from outside because it's impure, if you have the structure of fifty plus one, which means that clubs can't basically can't spend to keep up with buying, although obviously that's not necessarily healthy, then and you want this to stop, then you need major structural change to the way that the game is run. You need to do something to try and clip the winds of buying. If you can't stop the money, you have to try and stop them some 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 other way. But in Germany, there doesn't seem to be any desire to do that it's almost as though there is an acceptance that 50 plus one is correct buying are the best at 50 plus one and therefore this is the natural order of things and it's just what the, what german football has to deal with and i i find that really surprising uh, i'm not sure you'd agree with that thesis miguel that the only way to compete is for other clubs to get a load of money in by whatever means necessary uh to a degree i do um i mean i i think 50 plus one is a great way to run football but it requires basically a host of other rules that prevent any club being or any clubs being conditioned by their own but their pure size. It basically requires more checks and balances, and that I think as as everyone kind of referenced now already, that would be possible if German football was a satellite unto itself. But this is actually the issue with all regulation of football at the moment. That it's because of football's global popularity. And because it is just ultimately loads of individual leagues, it's almost impossible to impose any sort of, um, or, or sorry, it basically takes a great sacrifice and a great will to impose any sort of rule that's for the health of the wider game. 
uh, because also clubs will kick up, kick off because basically they're they'll just see all their foreign competition streak off into the distance, and that's the major issue. And and it's and and then of course, you you could bring in some regulations at UEFA level, but they've got the same problem there where the big clubs will just kick off regulations. You mean any sort of regulation, basically? To well, I mean, it, it does come. To, it's not necessarily about the solution. Isn't just getting more money in, as Rory said. It's actually about sharing that money around. Uh, that's the other potential solution. But there's just no football. We can already in England. We can see it in the uh, the resistance to what I actually thought was a really vague and quite weak crowd report for all the praise received. But even that, as kind of bland as it, as it is, it still led to it's like a ludicrous level of criticism in England. And that's going to be the same all over the game. And, and obviously the same if UEFA tried anything similar. So, I mean, I'm doing a piece on this this week. Uh, I, I think one potential solution, it's not, it's not obviously, it's not a, 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 a solution to revolutionise football, but I think it could offer some checks, is that if UEFA brought in the foreign player rule again, there was only a certain, uh, clubs were only allowed a certain amount of uh, foreign players Per squad, or, or sorry, in the starting lineup in every individual game, because what I mean, automatically, if you think about it logically, one of the issues in football right now is the biggest clubs can all just accumulate the best players. There's no stops to that. A foreign player rule actually does stop that. It also means, just by extension, players stay in their in their countries longer, so there isn't the same speed of brain. Day it's totally illegal brain under under EU law. Though, yes. I mean, now yeah. the the one thing I was <laughs> going to do about that, <laughs> but the one thing I was think I was thinking as regards that is that some sort of pitch could be made. To the EU for the you know for the competitive balance of the sport because this isn't it's well, not you'd exactly be, you know who'd Norton. sue you uh, you'd be immediately sued by like um, Alexander Izak or like I'm trying to think yeah. of a good player you know Dusan Vlaovic or you know someone like this who's like I you know you're you're um, I, I can't you, you you've cost me millions the, the, you know I can't there is there is one there is one thing they can do does it still exist is you can at least limit the number of non EU players. Yeah, maybe not Vlaovic actually because he's a Serb. So uh, you, you are the <laughs> worst example. I you couldn't, and it would only be there. The, the, there are drawbacks to it because it would effectively penalise a lot of players from smaller footballing nations. But you could at least introduce a a, a, a quota system on non-EU players to make clubs at least have to think about how many players they would get from South America and from and and from Africa and, and Asia, the and, and bits of Europe and England. The um, you know that that is possible. That's within the law. I think you could make a case to the EU that that you need to, if you that you that in the interest of competitive balance, competitive integrity, it it, it would be possible. You know, it would would be positive to have an exemption. The um the difficulty, as Miguel says, is that no one's going to vote for that. No one, no one in football, and we've seen this with the reaction to the Crouch report. All you see is your own little bubble. Yeah, that no one in England. Is gonna, the big six will not vote for something that favours the, the other 14 in the Premier League. The other 14 won't vote for something that favours the big six. There is one other, um, one other possible way out to help redress the balance, and that's a continental Super League, which is, the obvi- which is I know it's really important. Well, the Super League wasn't as unpopular on the continent as it was in England. It was the, Eng- it was the, English rea- the reaction of the English fans that crushed it. But that there is well, um, I mean, I mean in, in the case of um, Bayern and, and Dortmund, they didn't even dare to to join the initial breakaway because they because of the reaction they expected from yeah, their fans. The, and I'm sure the German German fans would be the would be the the huge problem. Certainly, Spain, France, Italy. I'm not sure there's n- anywhere near as much public objection to it as there was as there was in England. The that is the the only way you can hope to redress the balance 
in terms of the general power structure of football at the moment, just because otherwise what's going to happen is the Premier League is going to do to Europe what Europe did to South America. And it's going to, the, the, these major European leagues will, with, with the exception of one or two teams, possibly, become proving grounds that send play, the best players to the Premier League. And you'll end up with, in individual games, in the same way as you know, Flamengo can win the Club World Cup, you might end up in individual games with Bayern Munich occasionally winning the Champions League. But I would be interested to see what happens if in 2032, if English teams have won seven or eight of the previous 10 Champions Leagues, whether the, the European clubs look at it and think, do you know what, we actually need to do something about this. Because there is there comes a point where for all the fact that you know players come from continental Europe, ideas come from continental Europe, methodologies come from continental Europe, ultimately if the Premier League can buy all of those things in, then the Premier League will become the Super League that everyone was trying to avoid. The, the last TV deal just announced in America about a month ago, it really felt like, I suppose, yet another tipping point, another point in no return, just because to get that quantity of money in, especially post-COVID, I mean, no, no one can live with that. And it, and it will just, you know, create this brain drain for everyone, a talent drain, as Rory says. Yeah. I think it's time for sanctions, actually. I think... Um that's the obvious way out of it. It's not not re- re- reorganizing all these European leagues into some awful um, continental super league. Why would it be awful? Um, or or imposing or you know tearing down EU law, um, you know, to to stop foreigners moving around within the EU. Simply sanctions on the UK. That's the the obvious answer. A conti- a Napoleonic style continental system uh, by which the European uh, football entity is prevented from doing any business with the UK. And then we'll just, then we'll see, then we'll see, you know, we'll see where the real football is played. Ken, just last quick one. Don't answer Rory there. Why would a Super League, why would, why would a continental European league be awful? Uh, well, I mean, why would it be awful? Uh, well, I, I think that, I, I don't necessarily think it would be awful, but I, but I mean, it is, of it is, what it is, is it would be a kind of a new, I mean, it would be awful for the same reasons that people thought the Super League would be awful. Although one of the reasons was the you know lack of you know oh you're you there's no promotion relegation you're appointing yourselves as the kind of elite forever. But you know, I mean, you're talking about ripping up all of these um, century old well, not in the case of the Bundesliga um, national competitions to replace it with this new transnational thing just with the goal of making money. There's something a bit grim about it. Rory, last quick one on that. It's. It's slightly grim. I would I would say that if the the century old ish competitions are no longer working, which certainly in Italy, Germany, and France, you you can make the case that they're not, and so, and definitely in a lot of the smaller nations where the Champions League money's distorted everything so much that there are no title races, I think you can make a case that you you have to adapt with the times. And as long as it's open, as long as it's part connected to the pyramid, I don't think. That it's necessary. I don't think, by definition, by its very nature, it is awful. As long as it's done in the right way, it might be the thing that that rejuvenates European football. But then, at the same time, you know, let's let's give people their due. Let's people get to choose their own destinies. The, the Germans seem happy to have a league that's won by Bayern Munich every year. If they're happy with that, then maybe that's what they want. Rory, Miguel, great chat. Thanks, Emil. Cheers. Cheers. Ask Gary if he thinks like the publicity he's give young Frank now warrants it. Because personally, I don't think he's quite good enough yet. Now, I also think that in the last couple of years, you've let some good midfielders go for peanuts, like Matt Holland and Scott Cannon. 
Well, no, they definitely wasn't good enough. I tell you now, you know, you can sit in front of all these people. I tell you, without any shadow of a doubt, there will be no comparison with what Frank Lampard will achieve in football and what Scotty Cannon will achieve in football. And I may be now, I didn't want to say this in front of him, but he will go right to the very top. Right to the very top. Well, there you are. You heard it here first. He has given them belief. It's almost a perfect man management. I love this club when we start the season wanting to win. I'm convinced Frank Lampard will become England manager. Frank Lampard's lost eight games. Well, I can't drag people out of the medical room. But for some reason, hey, Frank's doing all right, Frank, maybe because he's English. I don't know. <laughs> Why do you think you're off the pace today? I know, that's one for the players. I'd love Frank Lampard to get the Chelsea job in ten years' time. Frank's yeah. track record on CV went to Derby, didn't get promoted, but Frank's got all the answers for Chelsea. He hasn't. I think for a journalist to be objective would be a big start. Harry Redknapp joins us live this morning. Harry, good morning to you. Good morning. People need time. You lose four or five games, it doesn't suddenly make you a bad manager. You're only as good as your players at the end of the day, and the players that have brought in, the two German players, have been massive disappointments. Yeah. Massive. I've not yet seen a manager that can turn very average players into great players. I'm still looking to see somebody who can do that. Before we wrap things up for today, and I should mention, of course, we'll be on top of the Champions League during the week. But for World Service members, if you want to sign up to that, secondcaptains.com is the place to do it. But you're making big claims about Richard Dunn, Murphy, legendary Irish football figure turned TV pundit, about him having a, a voice twin. You're convinced there is a voice twin out there. You named him. Can you remind us who it was? And have you gathered any evidence over the weekend to support your claims? Uh, I prefer not to speak on. I prefer not to speak. Just play Richard Dunn there, please. They've shown over the last couple of weeks there's a difference between them three and the rest of the Premier League. I think going to any of those stadiums now, you're fearing for it. You've seen what happened to Norwich last week. And now play internet comedian Darren Conway. Are you saying that you can buy a full-sized water park <laughs> on, on Wish? It came up on Facebook. You can buy a full-sized water park for a couple of thousand quid. I rest my case on <laughs> I rest my case. They're yeah. literally the exact no. same voice. You're going to have to argue. They're both from Dublin. Is no, they're both they from both, Dublin, they, but they're also they extremely... They both just have Dublin, they just both just have Dublin accents. No, they don't. They're Go both on. extremely deep-voiced, uh, raspy. Dunn has a deeper voice. Dunn has a deeper voice. Yeah, I mean, they're ex- they sound exactly the same. Well, listen, like, excuse me, Professor Higgins, right? Maybe I'm not able to tell exactly which part of, which street in Crumlin or Drimner or whatever the, the two boys happen to be from. But the fact of the matter is, they sound exactly the same. I I mean, Richard Dunn is from Tala, I think. Yeah, that's, that's for starters, Murph. Yeah. Is Darren, is Darren Conway not Northside? No, I have it in my head that he's, he's around my manor here. Uh, uh, but I'm not, inchy, but, inchy. Uh, no, well, more dream, more than maybe. Shall right. we play them again? Uh, play, Richard listen, Dunn? play, play okay. them as many Richard times as you like. On the fact of the matter is, Richard Dunn here. They've shown over the last couple of weeks there's a difference between them three and the rest of the Premier League. And now Darren Conway. Are you saying that you can buy a full sized water park <laughs> on on Wish? <laughs> it came up on Facebook. Okay, Murph. There is something. There's something in in. They both speak from the back of the throat in some way. There's something yeah. there. Yeah, I can't there pinpoint There's more than something there. I'm starting it's, to warm to your theory. Like, you know, if... if we if, literally all just sound the same to you. <laughs> no, that's that's absolutely not the case. There are many, many regional variations. What I'm saying is Darren Conway and Richard Dunn are from the same 
<laughs> if they're not voice twins, they're definitely voice cousins. Come on, Ken, it's obvious. Thanks, Murph. Thanks, Owen. Thanks, Ken. Thanks, Ken. Thank <laughs> you, Owen, and thank you, everyone. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you again in the World Service during the week. Enjoy the show. Take care. Bye-bye. It's the second time it's gone off. They never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those, those, those boys. It is not war and death and famine, it's not that at all. It's the opposite of that, it's to persuade the world outside of that. That's why sports is important. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.